you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 18 to 26. And some of you uh, might remember from last week that this was the same section we were in. Um, But not only because this is such an important passage, but also because we really only covered the surface of this text, and we haven't really got into the meat of this text yet. Um, We're going to be revisiting it uh, today. We're going to be reading from verse 18, starting at the beginning of verse 18, reading down to verse 26 in Philippians 1. Paul says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, then that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. We are in the final section, the final leg of Paul's report. This is Paul's explanation of what's been going on for him in Rome and how difficult it's been. But as we've mentioned now for a couple of weeks, Paul isn't just trying to give you the data, but he's trying to explain theology through the data. He's trying to tell you what's happening to him, but he's also trying to explain to you how to have a gospel-centered perspective on your circumstances, especially your difficult circumstances. And there's a lot of things that Paul's been explaining in these passages. Paul has been explaining that Christ is working everything out perfectly, which means, according to verse 12, that even in difficult circumstances, Christ is advancing the gospel. And he's advancing the gospel no matter the difficulty. And that should be exciting for us because if you were a Christian, then your greatest hope and your greatest joy in life is that other people would understand the gospel because that glorifies Christ. And the joy that Paul has been explaining is that no matter what difficult circumstances are happening, they don't need to get in the way of others' gospel joy and your own gospel joy. And he's explained difficult circumstances. For example, suffering. Paul's explained that he has been suffering and he's also been explaining that we don't need to fear suffering. That even though suffering is uncomfortable and upsetting and it might tempt us to distrust God's good plans, suffering is simply another opportunity that God sovereignly ordains that you would see Christ is bringing good out of bad. Another difficult situation he's struggling with is dishonor towards his own reputation. Paul is being disrespected. There are gospel preachers who apparently had evil motivations and they were treating Paul as an enemy. And that was unfair. And that was uncalled for. 
But in Paul's eyes, the only reason he even explains it to us is to provide another opportunity and an opportunity to explain in just a few words that our reputations are not the most important thing in our lives. As long as Christ's reputation is upheld, as long as Christ is proclaimed, then it doesn't matter if I'm respected because Christ is the only person, the only reputation that truly matters. And then that leads to what we talked about last year, which is death. Probably the most frightening thing of all time. And even in death, Paul has said, we don't need to fear death. Even in our society, a society that is constantly trying to ignore death as a way of escape. Paul has said, you have a much greater means of escape, which is actually to look death in the face and say, Christ has solved even this problem. And the way he solved this problem is by literally dying and literally rising from the dead himself. And because Christ has risen from the dead, he's promised that anyone who looks at death and feels they've lost their identity, they have no purpose in life, they have no value, and they will fade into existence through their unity with Christ and the knowledge of his resurrection, they too can rest assured that they will not only rise from the dead themselves, but that they'll be with Christ forever in heaven. And if you forget all of those things, or maybe because you've never heard any of those things, this is kind of the point that summarizes all of those things, which is that the glory of Christ outshines the dark difficulties of life. The glory of Christ outshines the dark difficulties of life. And Paul recognizes that in Christ, all of our problems are solved in any situation we find ourselves in. We are secure. We need to therefore reflect on the glory of Christ more than our difficulties. More than our difficulties. And that's for a couple reasons that we'll get into, but I'll say the first one up front and one that's really, really important to Paul, which is that we cannot be distracted from living for Christ. And getting bogged down by the difficulties of life is the easiest way that we can forget that our life is not our own and our life is for Christ, which is why we go back to this passage again. Because what Paul is really explaining in Philippians 1, in that second half of verse 18, all the way to 26, is trying to help you understand this thesis statement in verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We talked about death last week, but we need to go back to talk about that other part, which is the life. To live is Christ. I want you to understand very briefly exactly what that means, because if we just said that just means live for Christ, that's true and that's good, but that's not enough. There are two quick things that you need to note about that. The first thing is that Paul doesn't say live for Christ. He says to live is Christ. And that's a big difference, which means life is literally defined by living for Christ. Life is only truly life if you're united with the person who created all life. That is what it means to truly live. So we're not talking about adding Christ to my life and feeling more purpose. We're talking about adding Christ to my life and I finally have purpose. That's what we're talking about here. That's the stakes. But the other thing that Paul is trying to point out is actually, I think, the most underpointed two words in this text. Because many people have preached many better sermons on this text. 
But there's one thing that I think is very easily forgotten, which is the first three words of that statement. For to me. For to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Which is not Paul saying subjectively to me to live as Christ, but for you maybe living life is this or that or whatever. That's not what Paul is saying. He's pointing attention to the fact that every single one of you needs to actually make this decision. Sometimes we can talk so much about God's sovereignty that we can just sit back and feel like one day I'm just going to get zapped by a lightning bolt from heaven and I'll suddenly just be this total, I'll feel totally different in every single way. And being transformed by Christ is radical. But ultimately what it comes down is you looking face to face with your sin and salvation in Christ and saying, this is what life is about. It actually does involve you assessing your life and saying, my priority must be Christ. And Paul is alerting you to that by showing you the decision he has made. Christ pulled me out of my life and set me on the road, but I have also determined after the fact, knowing Christ is real and that his glory matters more than anything else, my life is for him. I'm never going back on this. And even though by God's grace, he's been sustained in that decision, it ultimately did come down to him understanding Christ is what life is about. I think the tricky part then here can just be to simplify things or make everything about this very convicting passage about, oh, I just don't measure up. My life isn't for Christ. Maybe I've never been in Christ because of sin, because of brokenness, because of the regular confusion of the world. But that's not the exact tone that Paul says. Paul doesn't say this necessarily as a judgment against you. He says this as an encouragement for you. He wants to point out how good it is for life to be Christ because dying is gain. And I couldn't find an amazing illustration, so I'm just going to take a shot at this. Raise your hand if you like coffee. You're all too young to like coffee. You guys are good. You guys. Okay, so um, so raise your hand. Keep your hands raised if you like coffee. Very good. Okay. Now, keep your hands raised if you mean like, I really like coffee. Not just like, I have drank coffee. Not if it's like, my favorite coffee is a Keurig. You actually like real coffee. Keep your hands raised. Okay, good. So I'm talking just quickly to all of you who are raising your hand. Um, you guys know the the joy and the quality of drinking like a pour over coffee versus like a Keurig cup of coffee, right? Luke, I'm looking at you. I know you know this. Yes. Okay. Right. Big difference, right? So there's this processed thing pod. You can put in a thing and put, you can raise your, put your hands down. Just yeah. Loosen up. You put a pod in a Keurig machine and let it come out and you're like, okay, it's fine. But when you have a pour over, it's amazing. You take the beans and you, this is, for, now I'm talking to you who don't like coffee or don't know what coffee is. Coffee is beans and they're dried beans and then you put them in a grinder and it's like, uh, and then you put them in this big pour over machine that's like a decanter. You put them in and then you get water and you put it in and the water filters through the grinds and it pours out and you have delicious, delicious coffee. So good. And you, again, know what I'm talking about. If you really like coffee, it would be ridiculous of you to just take a, a bunch of beans without grinding them and just put them in your mouth and go, no, 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 no. Delicious coffee. Foolish. Ridiculous. 
But I think what happens sometimes when you get to a passage like this is the equivalent of that. So in the same way you would never take beans and you put them in your life and be like, delicious coffee, it is. You also just can't take your life and just like assess it, all of your circumstances, and then just put Christ on it and be like, there it is. I'm loving Christ. I'm enjoying Christ. That's not how it works. And I think Paul is doing something kind of similar in this passage. What he's doing is it's his last time to explain what's going on with him. Instead of just throwing his circumstances at you and being like, be, be for Christ. Instead, he like takes them and he like puts them in a decanter. And then what he does is he takes Christ and pours Christ over his life. And what comes out are all of these reasons, all of these actual points that he can point to and say, this is actually what it means when you filter everything down from a Christ-centered perspective. This is what comes out, an actual life for Christ. And so if you can bear with that terrible analogy, I want to point to you at least three of the things that he mentions in this text, that he explains what it actually means to live for Christ, what changes, and why that's a joyful thing. And these are the three things, and we'll go through each one of them. The first is attitude. Your attitude gets changed. The second thing is your decisions change. Your decisions change. And then the third is this, your investments change. What you invest in. You could even, if you wanted to make that simple, you could say your goals. Your goals change. But I want to work through each one of them because Paul mentions, I think, all three of them in this text. And the first one that I mentioned to you is attitude. Your attitude changes. And what I mean by attitude is your general perspective, your outlook, or your emotions. I think the way that the world would call this, maybe it's more helpful for you, is like your mental health. That's not a terrible label for what I mean by attitude. And attitude matters because it's part of your control center in your heart, biblically speaking, And the the reason it matters is because your attitude is the disposition you walk through life with. And it's one of the things that can make your view of life either a wonderful experience or it can even take wonderful things in life and it still feel like a terrible experience. And the reason attitude matters as well is because I think there's a lie that happens in this world concerning attitude that's one of the most destructive of anything out there. And that view is that your emotions are sovereign. Your emotions are sovereign. One of the undeclared truths that we tend to live by is that when you feel something, that is just the way it is. If you feel something, that is the only natural response you could have to a situation, and it's unchangeable, it is permanent. That you are basically at the mercy of your own emotions. And the reality is that that's actually a very low view of the way that God created you. Because God is actually explained, especially all over the New Testament, that there is a connection between the way you feel and the way you think. And often, the way you can change the way you feel is to understand how you're thinking wrongly and think rightly. And so what Paul does before he explains anything about Christ moving forward is he just kind of explains the way he's feeling. And not just in terms of his emotions, but the radical reality of centering his mind on Christ and how that's affected his attitude. And it begins with this in verse 18, I will rejoice. 
And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll know that that's the second time he said rejoice. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Don't miss this. I have a reason to have joy. Joy is like the melody going through the book of Philippians. Even though Paul doesn't sit down and explain exactly what joy is or why it's important. He instead, he just points it out there as an attitude he has because of being in Christ with the assumption that you all know what it means to have joy. And just in case you don't, thankfully in this passage, he actually explains joy. Almost like he puts joy in a thesaurus and out comes a couple of three words that are synonyms, that they mean the same thing. But you might not notice it at first. But look at verse 20, two verses down. Paul says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In verse 20, Paul actually explains his joy in three different ways. The first thing he says is, it is my eager expectation and hope. Expectation, hope, same thing. Paul is explaining the kind of positive future outlook he constantly has. That's joy. Joy is looking forward and saying, in Christ, every next step is a good step. That's Paul's attitude as he moves forward. And it's not false positivity because hope biblically is never just an expectation or a wish that I wish it would go well. Hope is a very stable thing, biblically speaking. And one of the best words to describe it is trust. I am confident. I am convinced. I understand it is logical to move forward with positivity because my Savior has united himself to me. That's the first, but there's a second because Paul says, I will not at all be ashamed. Paul is explaining his joy results in a lack of shame. I think anyone in this room knows shame is a big deal. And shame can control a lot of your life. But shame was an even bigger deal in the ancient Near East. Because shame was like a societal death sentence. If you suffered shame, it was like being valueless in the civilization you found yourself in. Either you left society or you lived dishonored the rest of your life. Maybe you even took your own life. Shame was powerful and almost everything you did came down to, will this bring me honor or will this bring me shame? And a lot of people thought Paul should be ashamed of his life for many different reasons. Some people thought that since he suffered so much, that was like a clear sign that God had left him and he should be ashamed of that. Other people, a little similar, but kind of different, thought that since Paul was in prison, that meant he was weak and unspiritual. He wasn't as mature as he needed to be. And for that reason, they would say, Paul, you should be ashamed of yourself. You are a bad example of an apostle of Christ. And then other people simply looked at him and did that What a shame. Paul could be so much more. And it was like pity that they looked at him. And what Paul is trying to explain in his sentence is when you have real joy in Christ, it means you don't need to be ashamed in society. It doesn't mean that shame exists. It doesn't mean that there's not natural reasons to be ashamed. But Paul is saying that my value and my honor 
that's wrapped up not in what people think about me, but what Jesus thinks of me. And since I know how to live a life with a clean conscience before Christ because he has laid it out for me so clearly, I have no reason to allow shame to control my life. That's a really freeing thing. And then that also results in a third thing, which is like the inverse of not being ashamed, which is courage. Paul's explaining his joy fought fear, which is everything we've already talked about in the last three weeks. Christ-centered joy results in boldness. I can be confident and I can live that way. Not because I boast in myself, but because I can boast in Christ. And that kind of courage is so amazing that Paul has to describe it further. It is a full courage and it is always present. He's really trying to double down on these terms. A supernatural savior produces supernatural courage and it's consistently in him. Now go back to what we explained. If you want to have a certain kind of attitude, you need to start with thinking a certain way. And Paul wants to explain the same principle. If all of that, if living a life with that kind of attitude feels good for you, then follow Paul's argument that he says in verse 4. Because he says that the thinking that provides this kind of attitude is this. Christ will be honored. Christ will be honored. That's where it starts. Now, honor can mean respect, but the Greek word is actually a much deeper word than that. It's the word megaluno, megaluno. If I'm saying the Greek, that means it matters. The same Greek words for no reason does not matter. Megaluna, mega. You know what mega means, right? Mega, big, important, it matters. Now it makes sense? There you go. Big, important, something matters, which means the best translation you can make of that word is magnify. Christ will be magnified. And another pastor had a really good example of what magnify means. Raise your hand if you've used a magnifying glass. Raise your hand if you've used a microscope. Okay, cool. They do a similar thing, right? When you magnify something, that means something is small and you see it more bigly. Bigly is officially a word. You use it more bigly, and you do it so you can see it in more detail. That's part of what it means to magnify something. It means you see it in greater detail so you can appreciate it more. But that still misses something about magnify because that's like saying, oh, we need to see Christ in detail, but he's small, which is not true. And so an even better explanation of to magnify something is like a telescope. So imagine we all went outside and we looked up and we see all of the stars. It's L.A., so it's hard to see the stars because smog. But imagine you did in a clear night. And according to us, basically all of them seem the exact same size. But let's say we brought an astronomer in and he said, I'm going to give you all free tickets to come up um, to a hill. And I've got a giant, super-powered telescope and we're going to be able to see everything clearly. And we went... And he points to one star in the middle and says, look at that star. We say, which one? And it takes a long time because it's hard to find out which one you're pointing at. But you finally figure out which one he's pointing at. And he says, does that star look any different from all the other stars? And we say, no. And then he puts the magnifying telescope in front. And it turns out it's not a star. It's Venus. It's a planet. It's much bigger. 
than everything else that's surrounding it, but it's hard to notice that because it's so far away. It's what it means to magnify something. It means to recognize its bigness and importance and see it in detail, and that radically changes you in a way that you become awestruck and wonderstruck. Now bring that back to what we're talking about. What does it mean to live for Christ? It means to understand Christ is worthy of being magnified and allow that reality to change the way I feel and think in this world. Because it's really easy, actually, when you desire to magnify Christ, to just recognize his bigness for what it is, to naturally feel courageous because he's on your side, to not feel ashamed because what he says matters, matters more than what anyone else says matters. And to have joy, to a kind of expectation and hope that the future he's leading me into in heaven is greater than anything else. And that naturally evokes a question, which is, why is it so hard for us at times to follow Christ? Why? The easiest reason is often because we're just not looking at Christ. It's very simple, and Paul's trying to make it simple so that you would go into this joy as soon as possible. The problem is we just don't look at Christ. And the reason that it can become so difficult is because sometimes even when we look at Christ, we look at him in a microscope rather than a telescope. We look at him with the assumption that I am going to have to make him big because his bigness and importance won't just jump off the page. And yet that is exactly what the Bible promises. The Bible is literally promising that when you actually observe his word and you actually understand his importance will be clear to me by the spirit of God that is part of this text I will be able to see he's worthy of being magnified. And that's just going to change the way that I live through this world. That's the promise he makes. There's two sides of this coin. One side of this coin is not magnifying Christ, which is usually why sin feels so easy to commit. Because it's easy to sin when Christ is small in your eyes. It's really easy. But when Christ is big and the tables are turned, you'd be surprised at how much it controls your attitude. That your desire to be godly would become so much more natural because the God you're following is so much more clearly in view. And if you want a verse for that, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 is like an amazing life verse for that. But for now, we need to move on to the next part of this, which is this. Christ simplifies decisions in life. Christ simplifies decisions in life. If you are someone in a phase of life where you need to make big decisions, I hope this is helpful for you. Paul wants it to be helpful for you. And the way that he brings up this topic is he gives you a theoretical decision-making situation. You can notice that if you look at verses 22, 23, and 24, where Paul actually puts out a hypothetical decision he needs to make. Should I live or should I die? And he works through that. Verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That's option one. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's option number two. Paul is explaining to you what it looks like to be a Christian and to make good decisions. Here's the first thing you need to understand, and it's very key here. Paul is torn between two good options. That's really important. Two good options. On one hand, Paul could die, which means being with Christ, and that's like the greatest thing ever. That is the best situation imaginable. But then on the other hand, he could labor. And that's a good option too because it's fruitful, verse 22, which means it's helpful or it's productive. And in verse 24, he goes on to say it's necessary. It's important. God says it matters and he's promised it will have a good effect. Whether dying or living for Christ, every situation that he needs to make a decision on is good. It's actually so good that Paul feels pressure making that decision. That's why he describes in verse 23, he feels hard pressed. It's hard to make a decision because they're both so good. One Paul, one uh, pastor explained it this way. Paul's decision isn't about which misery to avoid. His indecision comes as a result of being unable to choose which blessing he prefers. Why does that matter? The reason it matters is because if we look at those decisions outside of Paul's letter here, we don't think those are two very good options. Option number one, that does not sound appealing to me. I don't know about you, but even as a Christian, I'm not irrevocably removed from the fear of death. Death doesn't naturally feel like a good option to me. And on the other side is laboring, serving, being tired and being exhausted for the cause of Christ. That also does not naturally come to me as a good option. So here's the question you should be asking. If I look at those two things as two bad options, and Paul is saying, you're wrong, those are good options, we should be asking, Paul, please explain to us why those are good options, because I see them as awful, but you clearly say they're awesome. And Paul actually does explain that. And that's actually the whole context of this. And it starts in verse 19 where Paul says this, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Which is a simple way of saying, I know you're praying for me because you know God's in control. And I know the spirit of Jesus Christ is guiding me because God is in control. God is in control. God is in control of the direction of my life. In verse 19, he's moving everything towards what? My deliverance. My deliverance. A lot of scholars debate on what Paul means by being delivered, what it is he wants to be delivered from. And the easy option is being delivered from prison. You know, that he'll be considered not guilty and he'll be released and he'll go to see the Philippians. And that's not a bad theory. That's a good option. Philippians 1, 25 and 26 at the end of this section. And later on in the end of chapter two, both confirm Paul believes he's going to get out of prison. But again, Paul is not trying to point to his circumstances and say, have confidence there. He wants to look away from his circumstances and say, be confident in Christ. And therefore, just like we talked about last week, where Paul is saying, all of us, if we're in Christ, our deaths are leading to heaven. We're also being delivered from death. 
That's why Paul says, verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is fall better. The ultimate deliverance he's looking at is salvation. Because look what he says. I know that you're praying for me. I know the spirit of Jesus is guiding me, which is everything is going towards what? Heaven. If I die, I'm with Christ. If I serve you and die later, Christ. Paul has serious rest in the sovereignty of God. It's like a mathematical formula. Dependence on Christ plus my direction is secured in Christ equals joyfully free to make decisions. Joyfully free to make decisions. If I know that everything God has in front of me is turning out to my good, and I know that Christ has given me an opportunity to honor him so long as I desire to honor him and put him first, I just simplified some of the most difficult decisions in my life. Paul simplified his. It'd be good to be with Christ, but there's a second option. The second option is fruitful and it's necessary. And therefore, verse 25, I'm convinced that's the decision that I'll make. He's not saying he's in control of his own life, but he's saying because something is put in front of me that I may honor Christ in, that's what I wanted to. And it's easy for me to want to do it trust in christ love for christ naturally leads to making decisions for christ and based on christ and therefore asking ourselves the question is very simple does christ change your decision making does christ change your decision making do you rest in the sovereignty of god when you have to make a difficult decision do you trust that no matter where you go God's going to make it okay. Do you trust that, yes, we want to make the best decisions we can for Christ, but do you just struggle with this overburdened anxiety that Jesus might be mad at you if you didn't make the best, most specific decision absolutely possible? Because I know some of you struggle with that. That Jesus, for some reason in your brain, you think Jesus wants your perfectionism which is like the opposite of what Paul is saying. What's necessary? What might be fruitful? Maybe it's 10 things. Pick one and rest in Christ. Do it for Christ and be rest assured. I saw an interesting illustration the other day that was really interesting. It was a scene between a man and his tailor. And his tailor had brought him a pair of pants. And he said... Hey, I got a question for you. Um, Every day I put my pants on and I fall over. Um, Is something wrong with my pants? And the tailor just looks at him. He's like, what are you talking about? And he tries to explain. He tries to like make it rational. He's like, yeah, every day I like put one leg in. I put the other leg in and I like fall over. And like, there must be something wrong with the pants. And the tailor just like looks at him and he's like, you can't put your pants on. And you think there's something wrong with the pants? And the guy's like, get out. Because he knows. He knows. That's just ridiculous. The pants aren't the problem. The guy's the problem. And even though that might feel ridiculous, I think the reason that that matters is because we can actually think the exact same way about our life. Which is we can fumble through difficult decisions. We can see all of these circumstances not lining up. And we can complain. And we can have anxiety. And we can stress out. And all of those... All of those responses 
are just ways of saying, God, you made a mistake with my life. You messed something up in how you organized my life. Why is my life so weird? I could honor you better if you changed some things in my life. (laughs) Meanwhile, God just puts his word in front of you and says, I love you. I died for you. I secured heaven for you. I gave my word to you that it would guide you. I gave my spirit that he might comfort you, assure you, and give you wisdom. And I've told you that if you desire to honor me, and you desire to honor me by following my word, you're free to make decisions to the best of your ability. And the obvious problem is you want to complicate everything by not trusting me. And you you look at your life and say, there's something wrong with my life. And Paul is saying, you don't need to struggle with that difficulty. I like the way Kevin DeYoung put this. He wrote a book called Just Do Something, which is a great title for a book. And he says this, the only chains God wants us to wear are the chains of righteousness, the chains befitting a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he explains what those chains are. Die to self, live for Christ, and then do what you want, go where you want, for God's glory. Now, is decision-making more than that? Yes, because every unique situation demands a different kind of wisdom, but decision-making always starts there. And that is supposed to relieve you. Where am I going to college? Who should I be friends with? What sports team or club should I join? Do you want to honor Christ? Pick one. This is really where decision-making begins and ends. And then that naturally leads him to explain to you what motivates his decision-making besides the honor of Christ. What is the next thing that, that ordains his decisions? And it's this, his investments, which is the third thing that Paul mentions. And we'll go through this one very quickly. Christ explains how to invest well in life, and it comes in verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's greatest investment in life is people, because that's what glorifies Christ more than anything. Investment in People. The word he uses for their progress is the same word he used in verse 12 for the advancement of the gospel. Christ's kingdom is built when God uses us to add citizens to it. And therefore the greatest thing controlling Paul, the joy that he has in Christ, is naturally overflowing into who can I serve around me. And that point is so important that it's going to lead to Everything he talks about in chapter 2. From this point on, actually, in the very next verse, in in chapter 1, verse 27, everything else that happens in chapter 2 is controlled by this idea, which means he's going to talk about humility. I'm living for Christ, which means I'm living for others and the joy of others. I think it's easy to believe that intellectually, but not to adopt that practically to actually make decisions that are arranged around others being loved and knowing the love of christ 
Ask yourself these questions. Have you ever been willing to sacrifice an A on a test or an A on your homework because your siblings really needed you to be with them? Have you ever leveraged an opportunity to join a club or to join a sport because you wanted to help other people understand the gospel? Or did you join for the exclusive point of adding something to your resume, to your future transcript, to get into a certain school? Have you ever thought about why you want to get the kind of education you want? Have you ever had the thought, I want to be a doctor because I want to treat people. I want to be a lawyer because I want to defend people. I want to be an accountant to help people with their money problems. Or is the only factor in your future career how much money you're going to make and how comfortable you're going to be? That's what I mean when I say we think we need to love people, but how many decisions do we actually make to organize our lives around serving other people? And I think one of the things that actually gets in the way is we can speak in a language that makes that seem irresponsible. And Paul is saying, like, that's crazy. If we live for Christ, we are living to love other people. Does that mean you're going to have a unique time determining your career? Absolutely. Because I don't know how every kind of engineer loves people. I, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like to love other people in every single career, but you just have to start with the question, would you ever sacrifice something for yourself so that other people might have a greater taste of heaven through you? Because that's what Paul did. And it wasn't just his apostleship motivating that. It was because he found so much joy in Christ. And you know why that was also so easy? Because he followed Christ who modeled joyful service. Jesus found joy in serving. He didn't come down from heaven against his will to die for you. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And the very next verse said that joy was so full that he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Which means he came to love people who hated him. And that joy allowed him to do that for his whole life. And it says that he did that so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, so that you could know that you could do the same thing. In John 13, when he washed his disciples' feet and he told them to love one another, he said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, which means you are proved by God if you do them and you will find joy in doing them. That's what it means to be blessed. Jesus modeled serving others so that you would know how joyful it is to serve others. That's why it's a good option. And I'll leave you with the question yourself. What are you investing in? And who are you investing in? And are you finding the kind of joy that Christ has prepared for you in that? This are the things. These are the things filtering out of his life pouring Christ into it and trying to understand what it actually means to live for Christ. Number one, it means a changed attitude that results from Christ's love. Number two, it means simplified decision-making that rests in Christ's control. And thirdly, it means passionate investment in people. One of the greatest, and I'll end with this, 
one of the greatest American theologians is named Jonathan Edwards, who many of you have heard of before. He didn't have as long a life as you might think. I believe he died when he was in his mid-50s. And he died in an accident where he took an inoculation, a, a needle that accidentally went wrong and led to his death. And yet in his life, he got to contribute so much to Christian evangelical thinking that even non-believers call him one of the greatest American minds. And part of the reason that he was not only wise, but so Christ-centered is because when he was 19 years old, and by the way, you are going to blink and you're going to be 19. He wrote down 70 resolutions of what he wanted his life to look like. And since I don't have time to read all of them, I will simply read the first and the sixth one where he says this, resolved, that's how he began every single one, which means this is what I'm dedicated to, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of duration, which simply means I'm going to make sure my life is about glorifying Christ and enjoying Christ being glorified without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, which means no matter how far in the future I have to do this, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. And then if you skip down to number six, he says the same resolution, but simplified. He says, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. That first resolution is just what it means to live. So guys, do you really understand, not just that you should be a Christian, but why it's good to be a Christian? Because Jesus is literally offering you to live a life defined the way it should be. To live in your creatureliness by the creator's terms so you would actually see what life is actually about. Follow Jesus equals start living. Let's pray. Father, we covered so much, and it is hard to find the right words that would honor and magnify you, and that would take us out of the equation. And, and Father, even me and my finiteness and limitedness um, just can't express um, these truths adequately. So Father, we just pray that your heart would make your word come alive, that we might know you, live for you, love you, and see that life is truly about you. Father, whatever you call us to, give us the strength of attitude that we need to endure. Father, whatever truths we need to um, hold on to and whatever lies we need to give us, give up. Give us the strength to lay those things aside and to pick up our cross and follow you. And Father, more than anything else, help us understand why it is so good to follow you. And give us the security of your eternal satisfaction through the death and life of your son that we might live bold lives for your glory and your pleasure. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.